0: Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and if you would rise as we honor the public reading of God's Word, this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26 in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, "Brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, and whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, how we do pray even now that you would open up our eyes to see wonderful things in your Word, that you would soften our hearts to receive it well, that you would open up our ears, that we would be willing to hear what your Word says about these things. Lord, particularly as we get in to this section of the Sermon on the Mount that can be so convicting, that challenges us with the way in which we treat others, challenges us with our sin. Father, help us to be humble drive us to Christ, give us hearts of repentance that we ourselves might grow in grace, that we might grow in our love for others and in our love for you, that we would even show our love for you by the way in which we love one another. Help us, O Lord. Help us to put uh, all sin to death, but particularly this morning as we think about the sin of anger. Help us to put it to death and do it through your word and as it is preached. For we do ask these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in many ways, even if, as you just think of the events that have happened this past week in our own country, we can see that the temperature is rising, that there's a growing hostility, that really what was said in the Olivet Discourse by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 could very easily be applied to today, that the love of many has grown cold, that there is a growing abundance of fierce anger and animosity between uh, people, In this country. And it can be very easy as Christians, as we look around and we see very many things that we can find that are uh, unjust, that are not right, very many things that seem to be even things that would easily incite us to anger. It can be very easy for us as Christians to be swept up in it and to ourselves become very angry. And here, though, Christ teaches in this passage the obligation of Christians to love. That is, even though the world is going to go on hating one another and being hated by all, Christians are always to respond in love because this is what is required of us in the Sixth Commandment. When the Lord uh, gave us the Ten Commandments and said, you shall not murder, what Jesus is saying here is that that command itself covered also the way in which we deal with one another in our hearts, the way in which we speak with one another. That is to say, we are not to be angry with one another though all other people are angry with us though all the people try to incite us to ang- to anger ourselves, we are not to be angry we are always to respond in love and this is even this idea of responding in love is even the mark of Christians themselves. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ said in John 13 that it is by this that all people will know that you are my disciples. All people will know that you are my disciples by the love that you share one with another. It is to be so distinctive that it's, it's not actually going to be found anywhere else. It's only going to be found with the disciples of Christ. And when you see that love, when others see it in you, they will be able to tell that you are the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the first antithesis of, of six that Jesus is going to give in chapter five in his Sermon on the Mount, where he begins, he'll say, you know, you've heard it said this, but I say this, you've heard it said this, but I say this, there's an antithesis. There's uh, what Jesus is doing in all of these is he's offering the authoritative interpretation of the law. He's correcting misunderstandings about the law that had been given. In this way, then he's expanding on what we looked at last week, which is he is expanding on what it means to show the greater righteousness of the kingdom of God. Remember, he's spoken to the, about the Pharisees. He said, You know, unless your righteousness unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so there is this greater righteousness that is required of all Christians. And this is what he is expounding on now. He's beginning to expound on it, particularly first by giving the authoritative interpretation of what it means to keep the sixth commandment. This is not to undermine Moses at all. It's to give the full significance of what Moses meant when he said, you shall not murder. And what we see here then is that in the sixth commandment, we're not just required not to commit murder outwardly, not to commit homicide. But Jesus says here that the root of that is anger. And there's actually then a corresponding obligation to love, that Christians must be diligent in the way in which they show love for one another. Now, the way in which this passage is broken up is in verses 21 and 22. We have the formal antithesis where Jesus says, you've heard it said this, but I say this. And that really gives a general overview of the teaching of the passage. That is to say that you're not only not to kill somebody, but you're also not to be angry with them in your heart. You're not to speak uh, poorly of them. And so Jesus gives the general teaching in verses 21 and 22. And then in verses 23 through 26, he gives more specific applications, particularly two. And so we'll look at the passage under those two headings. We're going to look at the general teaching and then the two specific applications that Christ gives, showing that Christians are always to be diligent in fostering love one with another. So now look with me again then at verses 21 and 22 as we get into the formal antithesis. You have heard it said to those of old, "You shall not murder," and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. And then Jesus Christ. And then Jesus goes on to say, "But I say to you, I say to you, do not be angry. Whoever is angry with his brother." without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. And he goes on to to spell that out in a bit more detail. Notice here then, as Jesus begins with this antithesis in verse 21, notice that there is the quotation of the actual sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And then there is a more specific application that Christ gives. So there's the, the general law, which is you shall not murder. And then there's the, if you want to call it the judicial application of it, whoever murders... What is it that's going to happen to you? You will be liable to the judgment. You will be in danger of judgment itself. And when Christ gives his antithesis, he actually does it in a very similar way. He'll give the general principle, which is not only that you are not to be angry, uh, that you're not to murder somebody, but also whoever is angry will be liable to the judgment. And then he spells it out more specifically with two other examples. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, one of the things that's important as we think about this antithesis, there are a couple things that we need to keep in mind here. Notice what Christ is condemning when he says, do not be angry. And whoever is angry is liable to judgment. It's not anger in every single case in which it occurs. Christ himself gets angry at times in the gospel. Think of when he enters into Jerusalem and he overturns the uh, overturns the table of the tables of all the money changers. He's quite angry there with them. And there are many other, uh, uh, accounts that we can give. Think of, uh, Christ, for instance, just a bit later when he's denouncing the Pharisees. He seems to be uh, quite angry with them in Matthew 23. It's not to say that all anger is itself, is in itself bad, but if it is an anger that is not for righteous causes, that we could not say also that our anger corresponds with the anger of God himself then it is in fact a sinful anger. And so Christ says, if you are even angry in this way, if you are angry in any way that does not correspond with the anger of God, if you're not angry about things that God himself is angry about and for the reasons that God is angry about them, then your anger is in fact sinful. And notice as well then, as Christ gives the particular uh, judgments that are going to come, there are a few things that uh, are said. First, if you are angry then you are liable to the judgment. If you say raka, which just is uh, probably an Aramaic word that's uh, just a a standard insult, uh, could be related to you fool just in a a different language. You fool is given uh, in Greek. The raka is given in Aramaic. If you say the first one, you will be in danger of the council. But if you say you fool, you will be in danger of hellfire. Now, what's the difference? What's going on with these various judgments that the Lord Jesus Christ Gives, He says you'll be liable to the judgment first if you're angry. If you say raka, you're liable to the council. And then if you say you fool, you will be liable to hell itself. Is there a progression in these? That's the, the question that we need to ask. I, I think the the best way to understand this is if we keep in mind that the first thing that Jesus says about anger is really the summary of the whole. Judgment is general, if you are angry with your brother, you will be liable to judgment in a general way. More particularly, if you insult your brother, you'll be liable to the counsel. That actually is related to human counsels. It's the same word uh, in the Greek as the word that we, we see all throughout the New Testament for the word Sanhedrin. Um, it's just the, the, the gathering together, the counsel that would render judgments on a particular person because they've sinned. And even here in the Greek, it has the article, so it's the particular council, not just a council in general, but uh, the one particular council, the human judgment. If you say, uh, if you insult your brother or sister, then you are liable to human judgment. And then also if you insult them, there doesn't seem to be much difference between these two insults. They seem to be about the same. You are also in some ways in danger of the hell of fire. There is to be a, a correspondence between the human judgment and God's judgment. And if you insult your brother or your sister, then you are liable to both. Now, how could it be? How could it be that if you insult your brother or sister, that you are liable to the council, that you are going to be guilty, found guilty with the council? Some commentators have pointed out that this, that they've, they've argued that this seems to be an exaggeration, uh, a hypothetical case that will never actually uh, be found Uh, In the world, if you think about it, there is no way that uh, any court on earth or any uh, justice system could possibly apply this. Uh, How could it be that uh, in a a country or in laws that you could actually be uh, liable for uh, committing a crime and liable to the, for the punishments of that simply for, uh, you know, speaking poorly of your neighbor, uh, it would seem like a very difficult thing to put in place. And so many commentators will say that this is an exaggeration and that, and that doesn't actually happen. But it is meant to make a point that if you are sinning with your mouth, if you are expressing your anger in the words that you say, then in some ways you are guilty and your guilt will find you out. However, there is actually a way in which this has always applied to human councils and human courts uh, in the world since the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not in um, the, the civil judicial setting, but in the church. This is the standard that the church gives. Uh, you are not just guilty in the church and you cannot; your sin will not find you out simply if you actually kill somebody. But if you you express your anger in such a way that all can see it because of the words that you say to others, you fall under uh, this sin, and anyone in the church can rebuke you. And if you do not listen to the rebuke, then that person is then obligated to find two or more witnesses to establish the truth of everything, and then you can be taken before Uh, the church if there is no repentance. This is, is in fact, the way in which the church has always operated. You can find yourself under church discipline uh, if you uh, do not repent and continue in uh, words of anger that that shows a heart that is not filled with love for others. Remember that what the Lord Jesus Christ is giving here is not the laws for all governments. He is speaking about the laws as it they're going to apply to his kingdom. And the greatest expression of that kingdom on earth is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is now the standard that the church always uh, holds you to. If you, if you are consistently angry with other people, and if you express that anger in words that all can see, then you can be rebuked and come under church discipline because this is the law of the kingdom of God. And not only is it the case, as Christ says, that you can be liable to the council, to the ruling authorities within the church, so to speak, but you are also even liable to hell itself. Now think about the importance of this of this law then. If you are angry with your brother, and this if this spills out over into the words that you speak so that all can see it, then all can see then that you have committed a sin whereby your rightful punishment is in fact hell itself this is to say then that clearly the lord jesus christ is saying that your words matter your words matter if you what you say as an expression of your heart matters if you say something to another brother or sister that uh, is insulting and shows that you do that you hate them then you have committed an offense which is liable to hell itself now What Christ is not saying, he doesn't mean that when you speak words of anger that you cannot be forgiven. He's not saying that this is the unpardonable sin, but he is saying that this is a sin that must be forgiven or else you will not enter into heaven. That is how serious the sin of anger is and as it is expressed in the words that you speak, that if you were not forgiven of this particular sin, you would be guilty of a crime which is worthy of hell itself. And even further, and even further, what Christ will go on to say in Matthew chapter 6 is if you do not forgive others from the heart who are angry with you, or if you've, you've caused them to be angry, one way or another, there's a need for reconciliation, that the Father himself will not forgive you. This is, comes immediately after Christ's teaching on the Lord's Prayer. There is an obligation. There is a Christian obligation for you to forgive others. This is one of the necessary fruits to show as a Christian, if if you as someone who's been forgiven of such uh, horrendous sins that you've committed and these sins that you've committed against God himself, the eternal God, if you then look to somebody else who's done something you know not nearly as bad to you and you're unwilling to forgive them, then this shows that you do not understand the forgiveness that you yourself have received. This is This is the the true weight of what Christ is saying. This is a sin. Anger is a sin that is liable to hell itself. And notice as well here that there's a correspondence between the human judgment and the judgment of God. If you insult your brother or sister, again, the two insults are more or less the same. If you insult your brother or sister, then you are liable to the judgment of the church. And that judgment of the church is so serious it's serious as can be seen in the fact that this uh, judgment itself is paralleled with God's judgment. There is a, a correspondence between the judgment of the church and the judgment of God. This is why, for instance, in the, the great passages of church discipline that are given in Matthew 18 and, and that really uh, are built upon the foundation in which Christ speaks in Matthew 16, where Christ says, you know, whatever you bind in earth will be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven there's a correspondence between the actions taken by the church when done lawfully when done in faithfulness to christ when those are done there is a corresponding uh, reality of what is happening uh, in heaven itself this is why excommunication uh, is uh, so is so uh, important why it is uh, so grievous, why it's so serious and terrible. If you are excommunicated lawfully, if the church has taken all the steps and fulfilled all the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the result of this is that you are excommunicated, this is a declaration that you are outside of salvation and that this decision of the church is ratified in heaven. Here, and this, the same works with anger. If you Insult your brother, you are liable to the counsel of the church, and that itself is a picture of what is happening in heaven. This is, without question, a serious matter. It is not just a matter of what you do outwardly, it's a matter of the heart itself. And it's not just that there will be small inconveniences and punishments, but it is, in fact, that you are liable to hell because of this particular sin. And notice as well, the main way in which the heart is seen in the passage is through the words that you say. It's through the words that you say. What you say is always an overflow of your heart. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ teaches in Matthew 15. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the true righteousness of the kingdom is not simply that you would refrain from murdering others, but but that you would foster love in your hearts and that everyone will be able to see the love that you have for others in your hearts by the words that you say, by the words that you say. And so this is the general principle that Christ gives. You are not to be angry with others. You are not to speak unkindly to them. You are rather to foster love. And this is quite an important thing. Far from Christ undermining the law of Moses, he is giving it its full significance and upholding it in in ways that the Pharisees never could. Now, in verses 23 through 26 then, Christ gives two specific applications. In one, he's dealing with a priority of reconciliation over worship. That's in verses 23 and 24. And then in verses 25 and 26, he deals with the urgency of reconciliation, the need to do it as quickly as you possibly can. Now, there are some things in both of these applications or implications of, of the general principle. There are some things that are common to both of them. In both cases, whether it be the priority of reconciliation over worship or even the prudence of reconciliation before it's too late, in both of them, Christ is emphasizing the great urgency, the great urgency of reconciliation. If anger is so bad, then you must be reconciled to your brother or sister as quickly as possible. Christ says it's more urgent even than worship. Stop whatever you're doing and go be reconciled with your brother. Do do not even uh, continue on in the worship of God without being reconciled first to your brother. And then the second one, he says, you know, do it while you are on the way, while you are on the road with your adversary who's accusing you. Do it before you get to the judge, because there will be a time when it is too late. He's saying, in light of this general teaching, in light of the seriousness of the sin of anger, you must make uh, take every single opportunity to foster love with your brothers and sisters and to pursue reconciliation as quickly as possible. Now, one of the reasons I think why the Lord Jesus Christ is emphasizing this is because very often when there is an estrangement of relationships because of an offense that someone commits against another person, very often it can be easy for us to put off the difficult work of confrontation and reconciliation. It's a very common thing. you know. Two people are estranged and they say, you know, I'm going to wait for this other person to make the first move or I don't have uh, the time. I I don't have the opportunity. Uh, It's going to be a difficult thing. I'll do it later. But here Christ is saying, you are to do it now. Whatever it is, you are to do it now. Christ, understanding that temptation, removes all excuses. Even if the thing that you think is so important that you can't be reconciled to your brother is the worship of God. Even if it's the worship of God, you are still... Not to use that as an excuse, but you are to go and first be reconciled with your brother. Now, another thing that's common to both is that there's a great emphasis on being reconciled particularly to your brother, your brother or your sister. This is not your familial uh, sibling, but rather it is other Christians who are your brothers and your sisters in Christ. There is an obligation to show love to the entire world. There's an obligation to treat others the way we would like to be treated, no matter uh, who they are, that are in, in some ways our neighbor is everyone who's around us, and yet the emphasis on this in this passage falls on the way in which you treat other Christians who have been united to you as they themselves have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. There is a special obligation of love for other Christians, and there's even a special weightiness and sin uh, if you will not love other Christians, those people for whom Christ died, if Christ has loved another Christian so much that he's willing to give his life for that person, then surely it is not only an offense against that person that you do not forgive them, but it's even an offense against Christ who is willing to give his life for that person. If, if you will not love the people that Christ loves, that is in fact an offense against Christ himself. And so all throughout the passage, there is this emphasis on particularly loving our brothers and sisters. This is even in John 13, which I mentioned mentioned in the introduction, this is even the way Christ particularly defines uh, the way in which other people will know that you are Christ's disciples, not just by the love which you show to everybody, but the love which you have one for another. One for another meaning the, 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 the love which disciples have particularly for other disciples. And so those are two things that we find in both uh, and both of the implications the, the, the implications that Christ draws from his general teaching. Now, there's one more that's particularly important, and maybe the most important one for understanding these uh, two applications to the general principle, the, the two applications of uh, leaving your gift on the altar, being reconciled, and of being reconciled with your brother on the way uh, before you get to the judge. And that is that Christ is not addressing the offended party. He's not saying think about the person who has sinned against you and instead of being angry with that person for sinning against you go be reconciled to them Christ in both examples is addressing the person who sins not the offended party but the one who is offending the one who sins in particular notice what it says in verse 23 not if you're you're you you're at the altar and you remember that someone has done something to you and then you go be reconciled to them. No, if you, if you remember there that your brother has something against you, that you have done something to them and that thing which you did to them may cause them to be angry. Not that you are being angry, but you've done something to them and that may cause them to be angry. Then you are to leave your gift on the altar and go be reconciled. Or secondly, as well, the, the word here that's translated adversary in verse 25, uh, is more formally a judicial term for accuser. And this is why then in the the flow of thought in verses 25 and 26, you need to be reconciled because if, if not, your accuser, your adversary will take you to the judge, meaning this adversary, this accuser has something against you and you owe them something because you've done something to them. And the judge will find out your guilt and then you will be put in prison until you have paid the last penny for the thing which you owe because you are the one who has actually committed the sin. In both cases, Christ is not addressing the offended party and putting the onus on them for reconciliation, but on the offending party, the one who has actually committed the sin. Now, the reason this is so important is because it is far easier for us and it's far more common for us to think about the ways in which others have offended us rather than the ways in which we have offended others. But Christ here is urging his disciples to think about any possible way that you may have offended another person. How Not, not, not the people who are the people that need to be, you need to be reconciled to because they've done something to you, but what have you done to other people that may cause them to be angry? Now notice how in some ways this, these implications that Christ is drawing from the general principle uh, are in some ways very indirect. He's not even addressing here the person who would be tempted to be angry. He's addressing the person who may cause his own brother to be angry. You do something against somebody else, this may cause your brother or sister to fall into such a great sin that they could be liable to the council or to hell itself. And if you have done something like that where you may be tempting the person to fall into anger, he's not addressing the person who's angry, if you are, if you have done something where you may have even be tempting the person to fall into anger, then you are to head off whatever it is that you may have done. You may or you're to to uh, to do whatever it takes to be reconciled to that person, so that your brother or your sister will not be tempted to break this commandment. That is to say, then the obligation to keep this commandment is not only that. Christians must overlook the offenses of others. That is true. We are to overlook the offenses of others. We are not to to be given to anger. But also, you are to do whatever you can to make sure that nobody else is even tempted to fall into to the sin of anger. That is to say, that, that now the obligation works both ways. You are not to be angry when people do things to you. When you think of anything that you've done to others, you are to make sure that you make it as easy as possible for the, your brother or sister to remain in love One with another. This is the obligation, and this is the way in which the Christian community, in particular, can be uh, characterized as one of love. That we are that we are quick to overlook, to to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, and whenever we even think we may cause an offense, we ask for forgiveness. We do whatever we can to promote reconciliation and love within the body. We are not only not given to anger, but we are also careful not to cause anyone. To be given to anger, either. This is what Christ is saying in both of these applications. Now, when we look more particularly at the first one, this it's it's such an interesting thing that Christ gives this uh, first application, particularly highlighting the priority of reconciliation over worship. Now, this may seem like a strange thing. Is it not true that our highest duty and the greatest obligation that we have in our lives is to worship God. How could it be that Christ could say that if you have a gift on the altar, it's ready to be offered, you are ready to worship the Lord in accordance with uh, the way in Jesus' own context, in accordance with the Mosaic law as the Old Testament had prescribed. For us, it would be uh, equivalent to being in church and worshiping uh, God in the worship service. How could it be that when you are ready to do that, the gift is on the altar that Christ would say that reconciliation is so important that it in some ways takes precedent over the highest duty that you have in your life. That even over the worship of God, reconciliation in some ways takes priority. How could this possibly be the case? Now, it's not because, it's not because reconciliation is more important than worship. In, in this sense, priority doesn't mean greater than. It just means must be done first reconciliation must be done first. And the reason is, the reason is because if you are not reconciled to your brother or sister, it taints your worship. You cannot worship the Lord correctly. You cannot worship him in a way that's acceptable to him if you are harboring hatred for your brother or sister. And so for the sake of the worship of God, then Christ is saying, you must first go be reconciled to your brother or sister. So serious is this sin of anger that it will make it so that when you worship the Lord, he is not pleased with your worship. Now, there are all kinds of examples in the Old Testament of when God is not pleased with the worship of his people. Think particularly uh, of Isaiah chapter 1, all throughout Malachi as well. In Malachi, uh, the the prophet there says, oh, that you would shut the gates and the doors to the temple, that you would no longer offer me sacrifices because you don't offer me things correctly. Or think of even Isaiah 58 where... uh, where uh, Isaiah there is speaking of the way in which the people of God abuse one another, and then they come to God and worship, and they think that they're going to be heard, that when they fast and they pray, they're going to be heard. But uh, on the day of their fasting, they go their own way, and then they also abuse other people. God is saying, "I, I do not accept that worship. I would prefer that you not give me that kind of worship. If you worship the Lord while harboring anger in your hearts, that anger taints your worship. And so if we were to ask then, why are you to see reconciliation and fostering love with other Christians as being so important? It is because it's the only way that you can worship God correctly. Why are you to be reconciled to your brother or sister? For the sake of the glory of God. If you love God, if you love his worship, then you must be diligent in fostering love with your brother or sister. Because he will not receive the worship that is due to his name unless you are diligent in doing this. Your worship is tainted by your lack of forgiveness and reconciliation one with another. Now, the second thing he says then, so the first thing, it has priority even over worship because it purifies worship in some way. The second thing that Christ says is that there is a necessity for speedy reconciliation. This is really the the main emphasis. When you have an accuser who comes to you, you are to be reconciled to them quickly before you get to the judge. That is to say, what Christ is emphasizing here is that in the world of reconciliation with others, in the relationships that you have, there is not an infinite amount of time that you have to be reconciled. There is a set amount of time. And we, we know this by experience. You, I mean, probably everyone here knows of stories, and perhaps uh, you even have one yourself of uh, when there is a relationship that becomes estranged. And at some point, walls are put up, and it makes it very, very difficult to be reconciled after that. Perhaps you know of people who have been estranged from uh, family, maybe uh, ex-spouses, uh, fathers, mothers, children, friends, those within the church. There can be estrangements that happen, and there is a window. There is a window where reconciliation is possible, where it is very likely to happen. And it's always a, very, a window that's related to it. If you do it quick, then it can happen. But there is a point where it becomes very, very difficult, where you could go decades without speaking to somebody that you used to love, that even you may even still love in your heart. And yet there is not the same kind of possibility of reconciliation. Now, God can still work in all ways, but there is a requirement. There is an obligation. There is a necessity, as the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking here, to make sure that the reconciliation happens as quickly as possible. Do it while you're in the road with your accuser. Do it before you get to the judge. Do it before it is too late. Now, not only is this true for our earthly relationships just in terms of maintaining them, but even there's a sense in which it applies spiritually as well. The judge here is not just, you know, the a metaphor for, you know, it being too late and therefore, you know, all is lost once you you hit a certain point you can't be reconciled. But here there's the spiritual reality as well, I think, that the Lord Jesus Christ is pointing to with the final judgment itself. If you persist, if you persist in not seeking reconciliation from others, if you live a life where you are hated and you are hating other people, where you will not forgive others, that in the end you will be handed over to the judge. There is a set time where you can be reconciled before that. You will be handed over to the judge, they will put you in the prison, and you will receive uh, the judgment of God On the last day, you you will be judged by God Himself. This is not contrary to the gospel of grace that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is speaking. The gospel of grace is one where the one who receives grace is transformed so that He does forgive others from the heart. I mentioned Matthew chapter 6 earlier, where Christ immediately after the Lord's suppers, uh, after the Lord's prayer, says, uh, If you forgive, your brother from the heart, God will forgive you. If you do not forgive your brother from the heart, God will not forgive you. Being merciful and kind, being gracious to your brother or sister as a a general thing that you do in life, it's not to say that we don't make mistakes, but this is a necessary fruit of the true believer. Again, we can sin in this way greatly, uh, but it is still a, a general mark of the true Christian that he is one who forgives others. It's what sets him apart from everyone else in the world. I had alluded earlier to Matthew chapter 18, where Peter asked Jesus the question, how often shall I forgive my brother or sister when he sins against me? Shall I do it even up to seven times? And Christ says, no, 70 times seven. Then he gives that parable of the servant who owes the equivalent of like a government's debt to the king. It's a number that would have taken him you know, hundreds of thousands of lifetimes to even begin to think about uh, giving back to the king. And the king just simply forgives him of all that debt. And then he is owed, when in some ways maybe a significant amount, maybe three months worth of wages, he's owed that by another person, and he's unwilling to forgive that servant his debt. What is it that is going to happen to the servant who, is, who receives the forgiveness of all of that debt from the king, and yet who is unwilling to grant that same forgiveness to others? Christ says he will, in fact, be judged on the last day. It's not to say that there is, again, anything contrary to the gospel of grace. It is that the gospel of grace always produces people that understand the depth of the things that they have been forgiven, and that causes them to be willing to forgive others and to seek reconciliation when they're with their accuser on the way before they get to the judge. These things are weighty. And Christ, as one who is preaching the gospel of grace, does not nullify the law of Moses as the Pharisees accused him of. He is the one who perfectly upholds it. And as we as Christians grow in our obedience to the law of Christ with regard to anger and the true meaning of what it means not to commit murder, then even as we see the world growing in hatred, and this will likely continue, we ourselves can continue to grow rather in love. And may it be that when others look at us then, that they are able to see that we love one another. And so brothers and sisters, do not harbor anger in your heart and be diligent not to cause others to harbor anger in theirs. Because this is the law of the king. This is the law of the kingdom. This is the law of the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself embodied all of these things. Think of it. When the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he had every reason to be upset and angry, but he was still willing to take up his cross and to go to death for the sake of the salvation of others. He was willing to deny himself and when he was reviled, not to revile in return, not to do anything that would incite to ungodly anger. He did all of this for the sake of the salvation of of his people, and he calls on you to take up your own cross, to deny yourself, and to seek reconciliation with others, to foster a spirit of love within the church. May it be that God would grant us the grace to be able to do this well for the sake of the glory of his own name. Let's pray. Father, Lord, how we do thank you for your word, how we do thank you for the way in which it is so clear, so penetrating. It reveals to us our sins. It impresses upon us the need for godliness and holiness. And Lord, we even see in many places in your word too, the way in which it gives us hope as we see ourselves failing. Yet, Lord, we see as well the grace which you show to your people and that you renew their hearts so that we could truly grow in love for others. How we do plead with you, O Lord, that you would cause us to grow in love for one another. Lord, even as the psalmist has said, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, that it is like oil poured out on the head that runs down on the beard and even soaks into the clothing of the high priest himself, For, Lord, it is in this very place that you have commanded the blessing. May it be, O Lord, that we would be characterized by love and so partake of this blessing to the praise and glory of your name. For we ask all this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, please give us a five-star review as this will help make the Word of God preached more available to others. Also, if you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F.com.